Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which is where we're going to spend our time together uh, this morning. And so, um, kind of as Pastor Ben was alluding to earlier, we've been going through uh, Advent and uh, we don't just move on from that without thinking about the fact that Jesus has come, but also that Jesus is going to return. And so we're going to wrap up our Advent series, After Darkness Light, by talking about the fact that Jesus has not just come once, but he is going to come again. Before the first Advent, the prophets had gone silent. They had not spoken for centuries. And the people of God were waiting on this word from the Lord and they were waiting on the Messiah who was going to fulfill all the promises that had been made in the Old Covenant. And then Christ came, and the light of the world broke through the darkness, and the Lord spoke again, and the light of the Word broke through the darkness, and the world beheld the glory of the Son given by the Father. And now, as we wait on the second advent, once again we are waiting on the light to pierce through the darkness. We live in a fallen world, we live in a fallen world system, and so we wait on Jesus to literally return on a white horse. We wait for the one who is faithful and the one who is true to come and to judge and to make war on evil with uh, eyes that are like a flame of fire and with many crowns on his head. And the question is, until he returns... You know, what should we be doing? How should we live our lives? How do we honor him? And so we're going to tackle all of that this morning in 1 Thessalonians 5. A little bit of context on this before I read the passage. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is written to the church in Thessalonica. It was a church that really existed, like, like much of the churches, uh, like many of the churches Paul writes to in the New Testament. It's a church that existed against the odds um, because that's how God loves to work. When the world thinks that something can't happen, he will display his power in showing that it can. And so by, by any worldly standards, the church in Thessalonica should not have existed. The Jewish people in the city opposed it heavily. Uh, they did not want to see this movement uh, of worshiping Christ spreading, and so they would have been opposing it. And then on the other hand, um, the pagans in the city would have been in opposition to it. So there was literally no one in the city of Thessalonica that wanted the church to exist, and yet it did. And they had a challenge in front of them to stay strong in the midst of all of this opposition. And so Paul is writing to them to encourage them, and he is doing this while he and his missionary team are likely in Corinth, and this would have been during the second of his three missionary journeys, sometime between 50 and 52 A.D., so about 20 years uh, after Christ. And the biggest theological issue in the letter is the second coming of Jesus. And so Paul writes about it in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which I'll read in a bit. And then he writes about it here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So let me read First uh, Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. 
But you were not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I want to make three points about the second advent this morning, and here is point number one. We see in this text that the second advent is going to be sudden. Everybody wants to know when Jesus is coming back. One of the best-selling books in 1988 was a book called 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Not so much of a bestseller anymore. Um, for, for obvious reasons, right? Nobody buys that one anymore. In 2011, there was a big to-do, and this guy, Harold Camping, said that Jesus was definitely going to be coming back on October 21st, 2011. And all sorts of people bought in, they sold their houses, they blew through their life savings, thinking, eat, drink, and be merry, because Jesus is returning tomorrow. That attitude is not remotely biblical, um, why they thought this was the way to go about preparing for the Lord's return, uh, I don't know, probably because they weren't reading their Bibles, right? And that's also probably why they believed this guy. So uh, in the end, he was not right. And this was actually the second time that he had swung and he had missed. But I was living in Nashville at the time, and I remember they were, people were paying for giant billboards saying Jesus is coming back October 21st, 2011. Pretty much any time you see somebody on TV or in a book or in a pulpit or on a viral video on Facebook and they say they know when Jesus is coming back, you can turn your television off or you can scroll to the next post and you can write that person off as being misinformed, possibly being kooky uh, and a bit crazy, uh, and certainly not being someone that you should listen to. It, it seems to never fail. So like in 2020, there was a lot of civil unrest in the country and we had the election that was coming. And of course, we had COVID looming over all of us. And there was some guy like in a basement in Omaha somewhere who made a video saying he knew Jesus was going to come back at this day and he knew who was going to win the election and he knew this and he knew that and uh, people texted me and they said is this legitimate right is this legitimate is this something I should be concerned about is this something I should share with family members and the answer is no you don't need to concern yourself with it why because of what Jesus himself had to say on the subject in Matthew 24 he says but concerning that day and the hour listen if you're a right-in-the-Bible sort of person, this is a time to underline in, the, in your Bibles, okay? And if you're not, you know, highlight it on your digital phone app, uh, your, your Bible app, whatever. No one knows, he says, okay? So the next time somebody comes along and says it's going to be this date or this year, you can go back to Matthew 24, 36, and remember that Jesus said, concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so if only the Father knows, then you can dismiss the speculators on the basis of the word of the Son of God. But when the day of the Lord does come, Paul says it will come like a thief in the night in verse 2, meaning it's going to be a surprise. Nobody expects a thief 
okay? Unless you're Kevin from Home Alone, okay? He, he expected the thief, so he put micro-machines down on the floor and tied paint cans to, to ropes and, and hit people in the face with them, right? He was ready, but those guys, they were not good thieves, okay? The, the second they saw the lights on and, and the little cardboard cutouts dancing around in there, they should have thought, we'll just find another house, all right? Um, that's what most thieves would have done, but then we wouldn't have had this great movie. So uh, nobody expects a thief, right? If you did, you'd prepare for him. Successful thieves know you come when the owners are not aware, when they're not suspecting anything. The success of the thief is dependent upon the element of surprise. And so this is a warning from Paul. And it's a warning the Thessalonians have heard before. Paul says in verse 1 that they're aware of what's going to happen when the Lord returns. They understand the teaching of Christ on the times and the seasons. They know that the return of Jesus is going to be like a thief in the night. This warning is similar to the one Peter issues in 2 Peter 3 when he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So if they knew, why was Paul having to write to them about it? Well, it seems like they had an unhealthy obsession with the times and the seasons. An unhealthy obsession with dates and signs. They wanted to know when Jesus was going to return, despite what Paul had taught them, despite what they understood from the teachings of Christ. And that obsession was causing them to lose focus. And being preoccupied with the when and the how of Jesus' return, they were not being focused on the work they were supposed to be doing until Jesus returned. kind of reminds me of the apostles in Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Which means, are you going to take the Romans down and go sit on David's throne forever? That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he tells them this, and then he ascends into heaven, and what do they do? They just stand there watching, which I can't blame them for. I probably would have stood and watched too. That must have been glorious, right, to be there present for the ascension of Christ. But they stand there watching, and here's what happens. Luke says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, so we're talking about angels here, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the angel's saying, He's going to come back the same way he left. Didn't he tell you to do something? <laughs> right? Go to Jerusalem and wait there because the Spirit's going to come upon you and empower you to be witnesses for Christ all the way to the end of the earth. The Thessalonians seem to be guilty of the same sort of stargazing here. Standing there with their mouths open, looking at the sky and wondering, when is he going to come back? And Paul is saying to them, you already know it's going to be a surprise. Have you ever thought about, you know, why didn't God just tell us the, the time? 
Why didn't Jesus just say, all right, prepare yourselves, you know, October 4th, 2073. And then those of us who aren't going to live to 2073 could go, well, give it my all until I go to glory, you know what I mean? And then those born in that generation go, all right, I, I got to be one of the generation. And everybody surely would repent, right, if he gave us the date. You would think, but of course people love their sin. Why didn't God just give us the date? Maybe it's because he wants us to live in a constant state of expectation, a constant state of anticipation, where we are in faith, steadily waiting on Jesus' return and steadily preparing for Jesus for his return. If a date was just given, how likely would people be to procrastinate? How likely would people be to say, well, I know when the date is, so I'll, I'll just wait, I'll kind of live how I want, and then I'll get it together as we get closer to the date. He wants us to focus on things like faith and hope and love now, believing that his return is imminent. Don't spend your, your time fretting about the win of it, but use the anticipation that comes with not knowing the date to drive you toward a closer walk with Jesus. To drive you on to take the things that he has taught you and to teach it to other people and to take the transformation that, that he has worked in your life through the power of the Spirit and to put that on display for others so they might glorify your Father in heaven just like you. So that you would be living a life that is prepared for his second advent. Let's keep going. We see that the second advent is going to be sudden. Number two, the second advent will bring judgment for unbelievers. And we see this all through verses three through nine. Paul's saying people are going to be busy with their lives. They're going to be reflecting on how, man, there's so much peace and security right now. Like everything's pretty good. Everything's going well. And then sudden destruction is going to come upon them. Believers should not be surprised by that day, Paul says in verse 4. But unbelievers will be surprised by that day because it's going to come upon them like a thief. What day is Paul referring to? Well, it's the day of the Lord he mentions in verse 2. That's the day in verse 4. The day of the Lord is an Old Testament vocabulary term. It was the day that God was going to bring a final judgment upon the enemies of God's people. It's the day that he would vindicate his people. So in Isaiah 13, verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Behold, in verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Ezekiel 30, verse 3, For the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds. A time of doom for the nations. Joel 2, verse 31, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And what Jesus did when he taught about the end times is the language he used about his own return is the same sort of language the prophets used in talking about the day of the Lord, which tells us that the day of the Lord truly is the day when the Messiah will come for the second time and he will do what the Old Testament expected him to do. He will defeat the enemies of God and he will vindicate the people of God. Matthew 24, listen to how much Ezekiel and Joel language is there in what Jesus is saying. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, straight out of Joel 2, verse 31. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because they are opposed to God. And God is about to pour out His wrath upon His enemies. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. There's some Ezekiel language with clouds. With power and great glory. So the Old Testament understanding of the day of the Lord was right. It was just incomplete. The day of the Lord is going to be when God judges His enemies. It is going to be when God vindicates His people. But the New Testament helps us understand that that is all going to occur through the Son, Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord is when Christ returns and He judges the living and the dead by the authority that has been given to Him by the Father. He brings destruction upon the enemies of God. He brings vindication to His people. And so unbelievers will be thinking, man, we've got peace, we've got security, everything's going well for us, we're, we're prospering, and then the day of the Lord will come upon them like a thief in the night. The way labor pains come upon a woman who is pregnant. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be a surprise. And there's no escape. Jesus compared it to the days of Noah in Matthew 24, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, Until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So in Noah's day, uh, the, the generations of mankind were evil, they were treacherous, and yet they were going about their lives thinking, well, this is great, we're sinning. And we're getting away from, uh, we're getting away with it. And, and they're, they're, they're eating, they're drinking, they're being merry, they're having weddings. And then Noah entered the ark. And the rain started to come. And the flood waters overtook the earth. And it was sudden. It was like a thief in the night. They were not prepared and they were swept away. And Jesus says this is the way it's going to be when he returns. And so how do you know if you're in danger of this judgment this morning? How do you know if the day of the Lord represents a day of peril for you? Well, this passage we have in front of us in 1 Thessalonians 5, it describes an unprepared, unbelieving life and it describes the life of a believer. There's a lot of comparison going on here. Believers are not in darkness, but you see in verse 4, unbelievers live in spiritual darkness. You are not in darkness, brothers, but the understanding there is that people who do not know Christ are in darkness. In verse 5, believers are children of the light, but that would make unbelievers children of the darkness. In verse 5, believers are children of the day. That would make unbelievers children of the night. In verse 6, believers are awake. They're sober. Unbelievers are sleeping and drunk. We're not talking about literal sleep here and and literal drunkenness. These are words that are symbolic of not being prepared. Just how unprepared an unbeliever is for the day of the Lord. If you're in your house at nighttime and you are dead asleep, 
like hardcore asleep, okay? Nothing's going to shake you. And a thief comes, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to stop it. Or even if you wake up, the thief is going to have a step on you, right? Because you're trying to shake that, that grogginess off that comes from being woken up from the middle of a, of a dead sleep. And if you're drunk, right, you're not going to be much good in, in fending off a thief either. And sleeping and drinking are things people tend to do at night. And that's why unbelievers are being classified as children of the night here in verse 7. And believers are not destined for wrath, but unbelievers are. They are in danger of sudden destruction. Why does an unbeliever's life look like this? Why is an unbeliever's life characterized by the Scriptures as living in darkness? Well, the answer is really simple here. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering if your life is shrouded in darkness, here's the litmus test. Do you follow Jesus or not? It is that simple. You follow Jesus, you walk in the light. When you do not follow Jesus, you walk in the darkness. And Jesus himself said this in John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. And this is as clear as it could be. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we turn away from sin, when we agree with God, our sin is evil, we repent, we turn away from it, we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and His death for our sin on our behalf and His resurrection where He defeated sin for us once and for all, where He proved He was the Son of God, where He proved the Father had accepted the sacrifice that He made for us. We repent of our sins and we put our trust in that and He forgives us and He gives us His Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts and He transforms us from the inside out. What He does is He leads us out of darkness and He leads us into His marvelous light. Like the Jewish people being led from the promised land by the light of the pillar of fire by night, Christ's followers are being led through this dark world to the promised land of eternal life by the Lord Jesus Himself. We don't live lives that are shrouded by the darkness of sin. We live in the light of the Word of Christ with all of the hope and the joy that it brings. So the second advent is going to be sudden. The second advent will bring judgment for unbelievers. And number three this morning, the second advent will bring salvation for believers. Believers are not going to be surprised by the day. You may not know the date and time, when the sky cracks open and Jesus returns, we're not going to go, well, I don't know who that is. We know exactly who that is because we do not live in darkness as we see in verse 4. We are children of the light. We are children of the day in verse 5. Most thieves don't dare to operate in the light of day because they don't have the element of surprise to their advantage the way they can in the night. And so for believers who are not of the night and are not of the darkness, they're not unprepared. They're living in the light. They are anticipating the second advent. They're waiting on the second advent. And believers are also not going to be surprised because they're not sleeping or drunk. As I mentioned just a minute ago, when you sleep, you are passive. Right? That, that's the beauty of sleep. For just a little while, you get to lay down what needs to be done in your life. 
And it's why those who struggle with anxiety, sometimes it's hard to get to sleep because it's hard to lay down those things that need to be done in your life. But once you get to sleep and you get a good night's sleep in, man, there's nothing like eight hours of just having everything turned off, right? God designed us this way so we could get that sort of rest. But as you're doing that, you're passive. You're closing your eyes literally to the cares of life. And if there's a lot to be done... I mean, it's the middle of a day, on a day where there is a lot to be done, and you decide, well, I'm just going to sleep. That carries with it this idea of irresponsibility, this idea of laziness. So on the day before Christmas, my wife, it's a big baking day, right? And if she's baking, then, you know, I'm, I'm policing the children at that point, all right? That's my job. I can't offer much in the kitchen I keep the children out of the kitchen. If in the middle of her baking on Christmas Eve, getting ready for, uh, you know, having everything ready for the next day, if I just said, well, uh, listen, I'm going to take a nap. I'm out. Good luck with the kids and the cookies, all right? Um, That's not going to go over real well for me, just in general. But she's probably going to think, man, how lazy is that? Like, I'm in here working, I'm trying to get this done, and he's just shirking responsibilities, When you're drunk, it's the same thing. Instead of a lazy irresponsibility, it's an immoral irresponsibility. Drunkenness says, there's nothing in life that requires my sobriety. And we know that's just never true. And so Paul urges the readers, avoid laziness and avoid drunkenness in other letters. And and he's talking about literal laziness, um, literal drunkenness. But here it's a metaphor. He is trying to get across to us, trying to get across to the Thessalonians, listen, you don't live in a state of lazy irresponsibility. You know better. You don't live in a state of immoral irresponsibility. You know better. Take the responsibility of being prepared for Jesus' return seriously because you as believers know it's going to happen. And if it's going to happen, walk in the light. And since that's who we are, as it says in verse 8, we belong to the day and we must be sober. We must be aware. We need to be on alert for the return of Christ. And how do we do that? Well, in verse 8, Paul gives us the instructions. You put on the breastplate of faith and love. You put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. What do I do till Jesus returns? This is what you do. If you're familiar with any other writings from Paul, you might be going, this sounds like Ephesians 6 right now. Famous passage, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Right? Take up the shield of faith. Take the helmet of salvation. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's a difference here between Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians. You'll notice in Ephesians, Paul says the breastplate of righteousness. In 1 Thessalonians, he says the breastplate of faith and love. And what that shows us is you shouldn't get too caught up on trying to match up um, each piece of Roman military armor and how it corresponds to each biblical virtue. Don't lose your head about it. The bottom line is this. These things protect believers as they wait on Christ to return and as they do His work. 
And there are two areas in particular that need to be protected. Your heart and your head. Faith and love protect the heart. The hope of salvation protects the head. Faith protects the heart because when you believe God's word and the enemy slithers in like he did in the garden and he starts whispering all sorts of lies about you, about your marriage, about your standing in Christ, about what other people think of you, when he comes in and he starts to tell lies about the character of God and the word of God and the nature of sin, Faith protects your heart because you believing the word of Christ is what is going to drive out the lies of the enemy. Love protects the heart because when we're loyal to the Lord by loving him, and Satan slithers in and he tempts us to sin and to rebel against the Lord, we go, no, I don't want to rebel against the Lord. Why? Because I love the Lord. Right? Isn't that why we want our children to obey us? I want my children to obey me not out of fear, although some reverence is good and healthy in the home, you know what I mean? But, but it's not out of fear I want them to obey me, it's out of love that I want them to obey me. I want them to go, no, I don't want to transgress dad's laws in the house because I love dad. I want to please dad. Dad's for my joy and I want to be for his joy. And so in the same way for us, our love of the Lord is going to protect us from the temptations of sin because it's the love of the Lord that drives us to joy-filled obedience. And the hope of salvation protects the head because when we hope in Christ, we know we are secure. So anxieties come like tidal waves uh, upon us, but we know who we are in Christ, therefore we are able to stand. And when the worries of the world that tend to plague us and distract us come along, we know we are secure. If a soldier knows the battlefield is dangerous, then a soldier is going to prepare for it by putting on their armor. And as believers, we know we're children of the day, and we know the night is all around us, and we know that Satan and sin crouch at the door, uh, eager to destroy us. So we're not going to run out into battle without putting on faith and love and hope to preserve us from the attacks of the devil and from the attacks of the world. Mark Howell sums it up like this. He says, when we believe God by faith and respond to him out of love, the natural outcome is a life filled with hope. These are how these virtues work together to leave us shielded. And what's the basis for the hope? What's the object of our love? What are the facts that we are believing with our faith? Well, you see the answers in verses 9 and 10. We have a God who has changed our destiny. We were destined for wrath, but He changed our destiny. We're no longer just barreling toward judgment and condemnation in our ignorant sinfulness. He died for us so we could obtain salvation. He took the punishment we deserve for every bit of our sin so we could be delivered from the darkness, so we could walk in the light of day. And that is true, not just for those who are awake in Christ, but for those who are asleep in Christ. Now, when here Paul says asleep, he's not talking about the sort of sleep we were mentioning a minute ago where we were talking about lazy irresponsibility. Here he's talking about believers in Jesus who have died before Jesus returned, and now those believers are in heaven waiting for the day when Christ will come again, just as we are here below waiting for the day when Christ will come again. 
We've lost some giants in our church this year. Alice Tucker, Charles Martin, Jesse Rawls, Alberta Flowers, Linda Savage, Buddy Poe, P.J. West, Sylvia Mountcastle, Dan Leonard. These brothers and sisters are asleep in Christ this morning. Now listen to what Paul says in chapter 4. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, or the asleep in Christ, will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I absolutely love what Paul is saying there in 1 Thessalonians 4. And it goes right along with what he is saying here in chapter 5. In fact, verse 18 ends in chapter 4. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins. It's one long train of thought from Paul. Those who are asleep in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive will be caught up together with them And none of us are ever apart from the Lord who has promised that He will be our God and we will be His people. And the summary of the Gospel you see in verses 9 and 10, for those who are awake and asleep, it tells us who we place our faith in, the Lord Jesus who died for us. It tells us who we love and are loyal to, our God who has not destined us for wrath, And His Son, whom we obtain salvation through. And it tells us what we place our hope in. The fact that all of God's church, the awake and the asleep, will be resurrected. And on that day, we will live with Christ forever. Is this gospel enough to carry us through as we wait on the Lord? And the answer is unequivocally, yes. This good news will carry us through. Which is why Paul says, encourage one another, right? In verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. It's the same thing he said in verse 18 of chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As we hold our position as the church and we wait on the groom to crack the sky open and to return on a white horse, what we're to do is to remind one another of who we believe in and remind one another of who we love and remind one another of where we place our hope. There are days where I might be feeling pretty good. I might be feeling like... There's been some rough seasons, but I feel like I'm on the mountaintop right now. I'm not dealing with too many trials as I'm waiting on Jesus to come back. I just feel like everything's kind of going well right now. Meanwhile, you might be in the valley going, I'm barely hanging on. And then that day is my day to encourage you that Jesus is coming back and the awake and the asleep will be with him forever. And then tomorrow, I might be the one barely hanging on. And you might be the one on the mountaintop, and it's your day to encourage me. 
or there are a lot of those days where we're both barely hanging on and we still have to look at one another and remind one another of these truths. It's why a day like today where we kind of strip down the worship, we just have piano and voices, is so important. We're singing to one another that He is coming again. We're singing to one another about the one that we place our hope in. And it's good for us to hear one another's voices. But regardless, we encourage and we encourage and we encourage with these truths. We build one another up with the gospel. Reminding each other that these things have happened and God is working now and His promises are going to come true. He came in His first advent. He has saved us through His life and His death. And He will come again in His second advent and we will live with Him forever. Here's the last thing I want to say to you in 2021. If you're here this morning, you're watching us on the live stream, and you are not a believer. Listen, he's going to come back. And if he doesn't come back before you die, you're going to die, and you are going to stand and face him in judgment, and then it's too late. These things are going to happen. Your death is going to happen at some point, or he's going to return at some point. I could go stand in the road today, out in Seaford Road, stand right on the two yellow lines and say, I don't believe that a car is going to come. But you know what? I can say that all I want. It won't be long until a car comes because that's the reality of what happens on that road. And the reality of what happens in life is that one day you die or one day Jesus is going to come back. So you can say you don't believe it all you want. You can deny it all you want. It's going to happen. And so let 2021 be the last year that you live in darkness without Christ. Repent this morning. Turn away from your sin this morning. It all starts with you. First, you have to agree with God that sin is evil. That's where it starts. You've got to say, yes, God, you are right. Sin is evil. I am wrong. And turn away from it. And believe in your heart. Believe in faith that Jesus has died for you on the cross and he has rose again and put your your faith in Him. Ask Him to forgive you of sin and He will give you eternal life. And you can put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope. So believe in Him and pledge your love to Him and, and place your hope in Him and then wait for His return. And, and if you do know Him, I don't know if you're the encourager this morning or the one who needs encouragement. By the way, you can do both. But regardless, remember that the night of this world is not going to last forever. Omicron, or however you say it, and crooked politicians and money issues, all the things that we worry about, it's going to pass away. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And remember that after darkness there is light. Let's pray together. Father God, we give you all the praise this morning as we come and examine your truth. Lord, it's really easy to get so caught up in this world that we think this is all there is. But I pray that we are reminded as we close out this year that you are coming back. 
And it's easy for us to think, well, that's probably not going to happen in the next couple of years. We don't know. It could be 2022. It could still be 2021. And so we are reminded of the urgency this morning. For those who do not know you, I pray that they would feel a sense of urgency in belief. In ending their war against you, laying down their arms, agreeing with you, turning away from sin and placing their faith in your son, I pray that they would feel an urgency to believe this morning. To not face another day without hope and without love and without faith. But for those of us who are believers, Lord, I pray we would sense uh, just as much urgency over the fact that we need to serve you and we need to tell others about you because their souls are in peril. And we need to recognize that we might only have a certain number of days left to serve you. We don't know when our number is up. We don't know when you're going to come back. And that we would not punt the ball down the road and think, well, I'll serve them tomorrow. I'll encourage someone tomorrow that we would do it today as if we do not have tomorrow because it's not promised. And so as those who are awake and sober and walking in the light, Lord, may we feel the urgency of your word this morning. Even now as we stand to sing, let's, let, let us sing, Lord, as if it would be the last time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.